This podcast is part of the Erotica Podcast Network. We offer a free Erotica Podcast and a premium patron taboo podcast which contains more intense sexual themes. You can subscribe to the premium podcast for $2 per month or support the Erotica Podcast on Patreon to support us and allows members to request future stories and themes. Thank you for listening. This podcast contains mature content and is intended for an adult audience only. It contains explicit words, thoughts, and ideas. The content of all stories is fiction with any similarities to real people or events being purely coincidental. This podcast is not intended for anything but entertainment of the listener, and if you do not agree with the themes listed in the tags, please do not listen to the story. All characters engaging in sexual relationships or activities are 18 years old or older. This story was found on a free website and brought to audio form here. I did not write and take no credit for this story. Please visit the link in the comments to further support this author. The Currency of Time by Daniel Q. Steele 1 Chapter 04 July 23rd 2014 I flew into Jacksonville International Airport for the first time in 10 years. The sun was shining and the ground temperature was 92 degrees. As we circled the airport I could see black thunderclouds building in the distance. I'd forgotten how clockwork the summers were in Jacksonville. Hot as hell during the day, summer heat like a thick cotton blanket lying across your face, followed most days by the rumble of afternoon thunder and violent, refreshing storms that were wonderful to experience if lightning or high winds didn't kill you or demolish your house in the night. I got a rental and took care of some business. Then bought flowers and visited the Evergreen Cemetery. I found the graves without much trouble, although the old cemetery had expanded and added sections since I'd left. Granite headstones marked the resting places of Eileen and Patrick McCarthy. I'd bought vases for the roses I'd gotten from Mom, her favorite flowers, and the sunflowers that Dad, a big rough Irishman, had told me were his favorite because they had been his mother's favorite. I'd expected to find the gravesites a little forlorn. Evergreen was managed well and the owners kept things cleaned up. But it had been ten years since I'd last been there, and there was no one else to visit or remember them, but they were well trimmed and vases already sat on each grave site although the flowers in them had faded and wilted. I looked around but there were only a couple of visitors a long way off. I knew that sometimes church groups would visit and take pity on the forgotten graves and take special pains to beautify them and leave flowers. Whoever they were, they had my gratitude that I had meant to leave the flowers and spend only a moment. But I sat for an hour and I could never later exactly remember my thoughts. I don't even know if I thought in words. Only feelings of sadness and loss for a life and things that were precious and now were gone forever. I had most of the day to kill so I drove around the downtown and found myself heading out US 17 South. I took the off-ramp, drove onto the divided four-lane that veered right and found myself traveling into the past. A lot of buildings, like the old pharmacy, a few small stores on the left side remained unchanged. On the right O'Brien's had expanded at least two stores down from where I remembered it, and it had been big when I had been a regular. I wondered what O'Brien had come up with to fill that extra space. It was only a quarter to seven and so there were plenty of parking spaces. I pulled into one on the curb and made my way to the front door. It still said in the same golden, gilt lettering. O'Brien's. The doors had changed now resembling the old-fashioned wooden swinging doors of a western saloon. But there was plate glass above the painted-on wood design and an electric I swung one door open inside and opened the other to the outside to let customers leave. There were two more doors at the very end of the bar. One had a steps and a railing for the handicapped, another a ramp for wheelchairs. It all seemed so much more civilized than it had been. But times changed that I put my hands out and the door swung inward. I stepped inside and looked around. The long wooden bar seemed longer than I remembered. Obviously the business had expanded. There were tables for customers to sit and drink a large area for dancing, the far area reserved for pool and a few electronic games. Despite time of day, approaching twilight, the bar was still largely empty, which wasn't unusual for a Wednesday. Looking across the floor, I spotted a large sign across the wall saying, O'Brien's Late Night Eats. Of course, that's where the expansion had been. He had taken over the adjoining shops and turned it into the late night restaurant night all customers and late night partiers had been asking for, and the doors were handicap accessible. But I'd be willing to bet he could lock them with a touch of a button behind the bar. Occasional brawls had always been part of the lure of the bar but you couldn't have riots spilling out into the restaurant where customers were eating. 
So he had the best of both worlds the wild and woolly bad bar vibes on one side, and a sedate eating experience on the other. You doing an inspection or are you here to drink? The blonde bartender's words weren't particularly friendly, but the face and honey hair piled high above her, and the chest that filled out in O'Brien's world-famous saloon t-shirt made me willing to overlook the attitude that I walked over to the bar and leaned over to see the rest of her. Hot pants caressed a particular nice ass, and she had legs that went on forever, ending in four-inch platform heels. How tall are you, anyway? Anybody ever tell you that you're a little too curious? Ask me about what we serve and I'd be happy to talk to you. And keep your eyes off my ass. The tone still wasn't very friendly, but there was a twinkle in her eye. This was foreplay. I like this game. I'd say six foot in stocking feet, add in another four inches for heels, and I don't know why you're working here, but with legs like that, I'd say you must have been a showgirl at one point. Vegas? New York? Private clubs? And I'm sorry for staring, but you have a fantastic ass. She didn't take offense, and I didn't expect her to. Any woman that looked like her had to be used to being hit on. Are you going to drink? That's the reason most people go to bars. Course. In the glass? That's the way we serve them. She turned around and bent under the bar, flexing that ass and I had an almost overwhelming urge to bite it. She came up with a bottle and a mug and poured it until the head lapped the edge of the mug without spilling a drop. She glanced at me from under long lashes and looked like she was struggling not to laugh. You must really love your course. Something like that. I like beautiful things, and Coors is a beautiful beer. She let me wet my lips and take that first wonderful sip of ice-cold beer and then said, You're a pirate? Pardon? She reached out with one long finger and almost, but not quite, ran it along the deep scar that cut the middle of my face from under my ear to the edge of my lip. It had been bright red when it first healed but now had faded to an angry brown under the sun of a lot of alien climbs. It makes you look like a pirate, or a very bad man. No to the first, yes to the second. And you can touch it if you want to. That almost made her smile. Does that line ever work? About 50% of the time. You must hang with some really stupid women. I think you'll be disappointed in here. The average IQ of our female customers is too high to fall for that. That's okay. I'm not interested in picking up any of your customers. Now the staff, that's a different story. Sorry, our waitresses don't make dates during business hours. We find it causes too much trouble and distraction. What they do off-duty is their own business. I was thinking more along the lines of bartenders. She just shook his head. How old are you? She asked that I gave her a long up and down look. When I looked closer at her face and neck, it was obvious she wasn't as young as I'd first thought. But she was still a beautiful woman. 38, but you've obviously managed to fight off the ravages of time. Are you 45, 50? I don't have mommy issues and I don't go cougar hunting, but you're a beautiful woman. Could a cup of coffee next door during a break hurt anything? This time she did smile. I'm closer to 60 than 50, and if I'd ever had children, you could be my son. A little older than I thought, but I'm not asking you to marry me. Just have a cup of coffee and talk? Again, what can it hurt? She leaned over toward me and did something that made her breasts bulge out even further. But what would be the point? I don't think you're the kind of man that likes to make pointless conversation. I've met men like you many times before. A cup of coffee, or a drink always leads somewhere else. And you're used to getting what you want. But you're not going to get it tonight. Even if that was true, would it be so terrible? You've obviously an interesting woman besides your appearance, and I could tell you stories from a misspent lifetime that would probably amuse you. I honestly may never, likely will never, come this way again so we probably won't meet again. Haven't you ever heard that old saying, what happens in Jacksonville, stays in Jacksonville. Dot. I stared at her breasts and smiled. A lot of women have told me over the years that the smile is my best feature. And can you honestly say, with no one around, that you won't be even a little curious after I'm gone about what it might have been like? If you don't stop hitting on my wife, McCarthy, I am going to kick your Irish ass clean across the bar and out to the street. I swung around on the bar stool to find O'Brien poised to land a haymaker that probably would have jolted me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. O'Brien? Your wife? He just grinned out I stepped into him, wrapped my arms around him, and spun him around. Since I was about a half foot taller, I took him off his feet. We both pounded each other's backs until he said, Jesus Christ, Mike, let me down. This is embarrassing. I let him down. 
He had changed. He'd aged. He still had most of his hair, but it was streaked with silver. He was a little thicker through the middle, but from the strength in his arms he still had the power that had killed at least one man in the ring when he fought professionally. Even when I'd been a young man passing through his saloon, he had been well beyond his pro days, but no young stud was ever stupid enough to think about getting into it with him. I looked over at the blonde. She was smiling at him fondly. Really, your wife? He leaned into the bar and she bent down to give him a long wet kiss. It should have been funny, that tall gorgeous showgirl type bending over to kiss the short muscular man, but it wasn't. My wife. And I have to tell you, Mike, I'm glad I recognized you before I did something I would have regretted. Ignore him. She said. He's used to men flirting with me. That's the reason why he has me in this outfit. He knows I can handle myself. And now, O'Brien, will you do me the honor of introducing me to your charming friend? Sorry, sugar. This is Michael McCarthy, the son of an old friend who practically grew up in this bar. She reached out and shook my hand. I'm glad to meet you, Michael. How come I've never seen you around here before? I took a second to think and then said, I've been gone a long time. Sugar, pour me a beer and Michael, you tell me what you're doing back here. It's been too long. Perching himself on a stool beside me, he took the frosted beer mug she handed to him and turned to me as she moved down the bar to handle three customers who had just walked in, touching his mug to mine, he said, to old friends and bad pennies who keep turning up. I'll drink to that and to people that never get old. Honestly, I thought you might be dead by now. It has been a long time. Instead, you got yourself one of the nicest ladies I've ever seen. It's got to be a companionate marriage, considering your age and all. He wrapped my chin with his fist, still able to move so fast I couldn't have blocked him, and said, Yeah, it's companionate as hell. Sometimes we companionate two or three times a night. Actually, I shouldn't lie. I don't companionate twice a night anymore, but once usually does the job. You're an old dog, O'Brien. You give me hope for when I get as old as you. Take a deep swallow of the golden beer in his mug, he wiped the foam off his lips. What are you doing back in town, Mike? Davidson told a few of us what happened and that you weren't planning on ever coming back? I'm not sure anyone ever blamed you. An old friend of mine, from high school, died a week or so ago. His family got a MES sage to me to make it back for the funeral, which is tomorrow. And I took the opportunity to visit mom and dad's graves. There are a couple of other things I need to do, maybe an extra day, and then I'm out of here. I'm glad I had a chance to see you and meet your hot new wife because I don't think I'll ever be coming back. There's nothing here for me anymore. He looked down the bar to where Sugar was flirting outrageously with the three customers. His eyes actually twinkled. So, what have you been doing the last ten years? Or at least the last five? Same thing I was doing when Davidson and Matt Henry ambushed me in Guatemala. I've visited maybe fifty countries and all seven continents in the last ten years, flown into and out of more foreign airports than I care to remember. I've sailed to a few hurricanes and typhoons, ran for my life in the Ukraine and the Congo and Myanmar. I've had dysentery, yellow fever and malaria. Been shot twice since Guatemala. Stabbed once. Crash landed an airplane twice. Just the run of the mill stuff. On the other hand, I've seen waterfalls hundreds of feet high that maybe no white man, maybe no man has ever seen before. I've sailed over what looks like the ruins of Atlantis, but are really only coral formations where the ships haven't reached. I was alone in a twenty foot long skiff in the Indian Ocean while a fifty foot long great white played tag with me. O'Brien shook his head and took another swallow. Jesus, 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 Mike, you make me wish I was young again and could go with you. I looked toward the front doors and the crowd that was beginning to stream in. A few older couples, but most younger couples and singles, the guys looking as cool as they could while they scouted the female singles who tended to hang in groups. Here for the music, the drinks, the good memories and maybe the chance for the glorious lay of a lifetime. It was all so damned sweet and innocent, no matter how bad the guys thought of themselves, the girls in their short skirts and nearly invisible tops with eager young breasts playing peek boo and promising the delights of heaven to lucky young men. They wanted to appear sinfully decadent, but all they were was young and in full bloom. I felt so incredibly old viewing the scene. I felt like a visitor from another time, another planet traveling back into time. It might sound romantic, O'Brien, there are moments, but it's usually pain and being scared shitless, and working 36 hours straight on projects that don't pan out. It's eating in strange little hole-in-the-wall restaurants that leave you puking and shitting for 24 hours, it's always being an outsider. 
Then why do you do it? I love it, I'm good at it. And there's nothing else I can do. Can do or want to do? Same thing. You ever think of settling down somewhere, Mike? The world is a big place. There are a lot of beautiful cities, a lot of beautiful women out there. And there are oil companies and companies that deal with oil everywhere. Not really. A city is a city, no matter how beautiful or exotic. And when you can live any place, what difference does it make? And there are always women. But they're only women. A sad and knowing look crossed his face. He didn't need to say anything, but he did. You've never found the one? I did. But I lost her a long time ago. He motioned to Sugar, and she tore herself away from her admirers. Give us both another round. And don't get those guys so excited they'll be hopping over the bar to get at you. She patted him on the head. You know I just tossed them back over again. She refilled us and then leaned on the bar with her elbows. So, Michael, how did you get that awful, romantic scar? A man was trying to kill me. I killed him. She glanced from her husband to me then said, That happened often in your line of work? Fortunately, not too often. Now it's my turn. One of you guys tell me how you got together. What I'm really asking is how in the world did an old guy land a gorgeous wife like you? It sure as hell wasn't his looks. No, it was his money. I knew it had to be something like that. O'Brien swatted me on the back of the head. Keep a civil tongue in your head, McCarthy. I'm not that old. She reached out to caress his gnarled fist that had done so much damage to so many men. No. I had semi-retired to Miami Dash. You retired. You were a showgirl? For a few years. In Vegas and New York. I went to school at night, got my accounting degree, started handling money for some of the girls I worked with. Then I started a successful escort service. She stopped when she saw the look on my face. Not that kind. There are always rich men who want an attractive, leggy showgirl type on their arm at dinners, nightclubs, anything. I kept my business clean enough to keep the cops away. I told my girls, if you want to sleep with them, go ahead, but keep it off the clock. Do it on your own time. She gave O'Brien a look that almost convinced me they were the real thing. Even though it seemed impossible. I branched out into talent management for a while, got married twice and divorced three times. Little story there. Finally decided I didn't need any more money and I wanted a place on the water where I could walk the beach in shorts and bare feet. I found it, and I was happy. She pointed to O'Brien. Then this guy came along and everything went to hell. I laughed. I can totally see that. Tell him the whole story, sugar. How you got so lucky to land the man you've been looking for all your life. She rolled her eyes. And modest, too. I hadn't seen my brother up here in years and I heard he and his wife were having trouble. I came up to see what I could do. But this guy had already saved his marriage, and probably his life. O'Brien shook his head. Chris has been a friend of mine for thirty years. His wife contacted me and told me they were in trouble. I didn't do anything heroic. I just sat him down and talked to him like an old friend. I gave him some information and he and his wife were able to straighten out their lives. I'm just glad it resulted in me meeting Sugar. My brother told me what had happened and I decided to meet this character before I headed back south. So I walked into O'Brien's one Friday night and things just happened. The look that passed between them proved telepathy existed. This was last year. O'Brien, you are a fast worker. We were married two months after that first night. She said. Neither one of us are spring chickens, McCarthy. O'Brien said. When you get our age, you realize you don't have forever. You meet someone and you don't want to say goodbye you don't. You gave up heaven on the beach to come up to Jacksonville and work in a smelly bar? Now, that must be true love. It's not where you're working, but who you're with. She said, reaching out to grab his hand again. She's not a bartender, Michael. She bought in and is a half-partner. We were able to do some work on the place. It was her idea to create the Late Eats restaurant. And there's beaches twenty miles from here. She said. We keep a condo at Jack's Beach for when I have an uncontrollable urge to put my feet into the sand. And I talked him into hiring a real assistant manager so he only has to work four nights a week. I thought about trying to talk him into retiring full-time with me, but this bar is his life and I'll never get him out of here completely. I'm happy for both of you. I do have one question, though. With you so tall, and O'Brien so height-deprived, how do the two of you know? She just smiled a feminine smile. He's tall enough to reach all of the good parts. O'Brien as God is my judge blushed. 
There are sailors who told me in my travels there are instincts that cannot be explained rationally. That there are times when all the scientific equipment is clear and the forecasts call for brilliant skies and calm winds. And you're on the deck of a ship and you're looking at peaceful vistas of calm water when a strange feeling will begin to grow at the base of your spine. It grows up through your stomach and the hairs on the back of your neck rustle and then rise in fear and it takes over your body and even if it is still and calm, you can sense a wind from hell beginning to sweep across the water. Your eyes strain to see things beginning to move deep within the blue. The ship begins to move beneath your feet. They called it the dark seas. And if you ever feel it, they said, get the hell out of there if you can, or get to the nearest shore, because all hell is about to break out. And when I asked them why I hadn't heard about it before, the answer was simple. The people who didn't run didn't live to tell anyone about it. I'd never heard anyone talk about it occurring on dry land. But I now knew what it felt like because it swept over me like a chill wind from hell. I stared at my old friend and told him, You'd better call the cops right now, O'Brien. Because I know you used to be a pro fighter and all, but that was 40 years ago. When this is over, I'm going to hurt you. Sugar stared at me with fear clear on her face, which must have meant she believed my threat. When this is over, you've got the first shot, O'Brien said. And it's been 40 years, but no man has ever put me down. You're welcome to try, Michael but there are things you don't know, and you need to know. If I get a beating, it will be worth it. Hello, Michael. I turned to face my undying personal nightmare. Point ten years had filled out her cultish lines, added weight to her hips and breasts, added a few lines to her face, and almost eliminated the faint scars from that accident so long ago. Her hair was still that blazing crimson, and it still crackled as if flowing around her head. She looked like some angry Irish deity, ready to hurl lightning. She wore a simple red dress, cut lower in back than in front, high enough to show those great legs of hers. Why are you here, Deirdre? Why the hell won't you leave me alone? She took a step toward me and involuntarily I took a step back. I know what happened to your friends five years ago. I'm sorry. I never meant for any of that to happen. If you don't believe anything else I say, believe that. I don't believe anything you say, including that. When your lips are moving, you're lying. Can we sit at a table and talk? Short answer is I don't want to talk to you. Michael, please. Just a few minutes. I can't afford to lose another few minutes out of my life. No thanks. What do I have to say to convince you to talk to me? Say goodbye. She stepped back and sank into the chair at one of the small tables that dotted this part of the bar. Just talk to me, Michael. Let me say the things I need to say to you. Let me try to help us both find closure. And then you can go off and vanish again for the rest of your life the rest of our lives and I will never try to find you again. Sorry, Deirdre or Spawn of Hell as I like to call you but I already told you I don't believe anything that comes out of your mouth. What will it hurt? What did it hurt to see you sucking on his lips and gasping for more at the fucking conference in Bailey's office? You could have pulled my fingernails out and been more merciful. You didn't have to play with him in front of me but you did. So, what will it hurt to sit and talk with you? It will hurt like having my skin set on fire. I gave up masochism for Lent. Hi. I wish there was some way I could make you believe how sorry I am for what I did for what happened. You ever stopped to think I was twenty-two years old? He was my first love, the man I wanted to be the father of my children. Good luck with that. You never did anything you regret, Michael? Don't forget. We used to talk. I know how you used to be. I know what you did when you were sixteen and seventeen and eighteen. I know about the woman in Cuba that killed herself after you took her away from her husband and abandoned her. You ever think about her? Or any of the marriages you left shattered after you'd had your fun? You told me yourself you were a cold-blooded asshole. I was a kid, Deirdre, that's the difference. Twenty-two and married for two years is not a kid. You were a grown woman and you knew what you were doing. I took a deep breath. I was not going to let my feelings show in my voice. I deserved better from you, Deirdre. I was a good husband. I loved you. And I trusted you. And apparently nothing I ever did was good enough for you. You got exactly what you deserved. The crowd that had begun to fill the tables were staring at us, I realized. O'Brien stood behind me. You need some privacy. I'll open up the restaurant for you. It's not open for customers yet. Not necessary, O'Brien, I'm out of here. I'll give you your beating another day. He closed his hand around my wrist. You've been running for ten years, Mike. Stop it here. Finish it. Do it so you can bury the past and start a new life. I haven't been running from anything, O'Brien, and not from her. 
And in ten years you haven't found a woman you loved. Haven't found a place to sink roots. Haven't found a place to call home. You call that anything you want, but I call it running. He was wrong. I hadn't been running. I'd just been living my life. But I thought about it. What could she do to hurt me worse than she'd already done? It was just a few minutes and maybe if I was honest with her, she'd release me. Ten minutes. It won't take longer than that. I started walking toward the restaurant. O'Brien walked ahead of me. In a moment I felt her walking beside me and then ahead of me. I closed my eyes to try to scrub the vision of her ass in that red dress from my mind. But when I opened my eyes, she was still there. Sugar must have opened it from the bar, because the doors swung open. It looked like an all-night diner, the kind that used to spring up near bus stations. For Mike a countertop with the coffee pots behind it, and behind that the kitchen. There were plastic round swivel seats at the counter and tables with red plastic table clothes. They hadn't been set with napkins and utensils but I could hear people in the kitchen. O'Brien bellowed. Stay in the kitchen for a little while guys. We can open a little later tonight. I got customers who need some privacy out here. Then, it's all yours. And he walked out. She leaned back against the tabletop which naturally highlighted those legs of hers. What is so urgent that we had to meet face to face, Deirdre? What do we have left to say to each other? Why didn't you take the ten million dollars the first time? Or the second time in Guatemala? Why did you offer it the second time? You know why. It didn't take a year after you left before I realized what kind of man he was. Before I realized I'd been a silly little girl that fell for a pretty face and that the only thing he ever loved about me was my money. I realized my father had been right in everything he said about Julian. He was greedy and narcissistic and violent, and he never could keep his hands off any woman that was around him. I put up with his putting his hands on me for a while because I told myself I deserved it. I had thrown away a good man for a piece of shit who was good in bed. But it wasn't long before I decided he had to go. And you know about his trying to have me killed. I should have known from the way he wanted to deal with you that he'd treat me the same way. But the good thing was, Julian was always stupid. There were a lot easier ways he could have killed me, but he tried to be fancy and hire a hitman. She ran her hands over her dress, smoothing it down over her thighs. Whatever she did, reminded me of the body beneath. I had no idea you were going to burn the first check. I understand now why you did it. You were saying fuck you as eloquently as you could. But I hoped after five years your anger had cooled and you'd take the money. There was no other way I could try to make up for the hurt I did to you, the pain I caused. They call that blood money, Deirdre. Sometimes money is the only way you have to say you're sorry. It's not enough. It never was. She stood up. So that's it. We're done. You don't believe people can change, grow, become better people. Despite your own experience. Maybe people can change. Maybe you're not the same person you were. But I don't care. I thought the look of pain that crossed her face was what I'd been waiting for for ten years. It was the perfect ending to my last trip to Jacksonville. I was about to walk away, but I stopped. She would never understand, she would never hurt the way I wanted her to hurt unless I explained it to her. You know how my father was, I talked enough about him. I don't know if I told you that much about him before he went to work for your father. He started working the oil fields in West Texas when he was 14. He was a millionaire three times before I was 10 years old. And he lost it all each time. He loved that life, but he told me that it was never fair to my mother. She was a woman, he said, and a mother, and they want stability. A steady paycheck. A house. So he went to work for your father. He got to travel and mom got the stability she wanted. It only lasted a few years before she died, but he enjoyed working for Orion and so he stayed. When I was a little boy and he had just lost a couple of million dollars and we had to spend the night in the home of one of my mother's aunts, mom was a little upset. And I was old enough to realize not having any money was not a good thing. He sat down with me and told me the truth about money. He said money was like food or water or air. If you're starving or dying of thirst or suffocating, nothing in the world is more important. If you have enough, you don't even think about it. And he said I'd never had to worry about money. He said, son, you're never going to be poor. You have my knack. I can't smell oil under the ground. But I can sense it. I can feel it. People say I'm crazy, but I know I can and you'll have the same knack. Once you've proven you have it, all kinds of people will throw money at you. And that's why you should never worry about money. People fight and die for it, 
but it's not what counts in the end. You can't take money with you and it's not the measure of whether you've led a good life. The currency of time, the measure of what your life has been worth, are the memories you make, the people you've loved, the impact you leave behind you. He knelt down beside me in that strange house and told me, if I was to die tonight, with nothing but the change in my pockets, I wouldn't die a poor man. I've loved your mother, and I've loved you. All the rest of it is dust in the wind. I could almost hear his words in my ears across the gulf of thirty years. He was still the smartest, wisest man I've ever known. And I'd never forgotten his words. Part of the reason, Deirdre, why I rejected your ten million dollar checks was to poke my finger in your eye. But the real reason is the ten million dollars doesn't even come to making up for what you did to me. I don't understand. I know. You never have. I never wanted to love you. But I did. And that spell you placed on me made me want things I'd never wanted before. I wanted a home, a family, a life. I dreamed of wandering the world and always coming back to you. I dreamed of our children. A little red-haired boy and a little red-haired girl. In my dreams I could see them perfectly. It's been ten years, Deirdre, and once in a while, a rare while, I still dream of them. But they're still toddlers. They've never grown. And they never will. Because they'll never be born. They're ghosts from a life that I'll never have. That's why I hate you, why I'll never forgive you no matter how much money you throw at me. You stole that life from me. I walked away from her to the door that led to the bar. I raised my hand to knock when I felt her hand on my shoulder. As she always had, her skin burned. I thought she must have a normal temperature of 108.6. She stroked the back of my neck and then ran her fingers across my scar. I would not give her the satisfaction of turning to face her. The scar makes you look mean, Michael. I wonder how many women it's drawn into your bed. I reached up to knock on the door hoping O'Brien was waiting for my signal. So you hate me, Michael? All right. I'm a businesswoman. Maybe we can work a deal. If you won't take the ten million dollars in a lump sum, maybe I can pay off my bill on the installment plan. I knocked on the door. If you ever are back in Jacksonville on business, you are welcome to come to St. Augustine to enjoy the estate. You remember, the sleeping facilities are first rate and Andre is still my personal chef. I had him prepare duck lorange tonight which I remember was your favorite. I'll only charge you one thousand dollars per night against your tap. You don't even have to see me if you want to spend the night there. I'll stay out of your way. I remember you loved the estate when you lived there. I removed her hand from my face. You are literally insane, Deirdre, if you think I'd come within a thousand miles of you voluntarily. You can even have me whenever you're in the mood. I think you'll find you'd pay ten thousand dollars a night for the experience if you had a professional rate my services. I'm very good. Oh, and I know you hate me. But you'd still fuck me. The door finally opened allowing me to escape. The bar was filling up but I saw Sugar and O'Brien behind the bar. There was an open bar stool in front of them. I honed in on it and told Sugar. Give me one course to get the taste of that conversation out of my mouth and I'm out of here. I closed my eyes but I could still sense her behind me. Before you leave, Michael, I hope you'll come out to my limo. I have something for you. She was gone or the brooding feeling of a live electric wire behind me was gone. I opened my eyes and grabbed the mug full of cores. I hoped the beer would soothe the trembling vibration inside me. I closed my eyes and wished that magic was real, other than the kind that vengeful Irish demigoddesses wielded. What would my life be like if I never gotten involved with Deirdre Lancaster? I might have a wife and children and a home. Except that it wouldn't be the same. Because she wouldn't be there. I took a gulp of cores and told O'Brien. Why do I have this really bad feeling about what she's got waiting for me out there? The only way to find out is to step outside and take a look. You know, don't you? He shrugged. What do you suppose your father carried down with him into the ocean that day? I didn't need to answer him because he'd known my father, but I said. He carried the memories of my mother and me. And what are you going to carry down with you on the day that it's your time, Michael? After a while I got up from the bar and walked outside. It seemed like a long time and she had probably already left. She was bent down beside a 2014 stretch white limo talking to someone inside. Then she turned back toward me. She walked toward me in that hip-strutting gait that no other woman had ever managed to quite imitate. You couldn't resist. Can't we just get this over with, Deirdre? Tell me what the next mind-blowing secret is and let me get back inside to drinking. There was a faint smile on her face, coupled with an expression I couldn't decipher. Behind her I could see a pretty young woman getting out of the back passenger seat, 
and on the other side of the car a hulk easily the size of Harper Stevens dressed in a black suit. She stepped to one side and I saw what walked along behind her holding the hand of the pretty young woman. There are moments when the world turns on its axis and everything that was old and established vanishes like dew in the sunshine. When the world you knew changes and you change with it. He had the same flaming red hair as my ex-wife, the stocky body of a four-year-old big for his age. He wore shorts and a Jacksonville Jaguars t-shirt. He's yours. I know you might not believe me, but... I looked into my father's eyes, into my eyes, and knew I didn't need proof. He was me, the earliest pictures my father and mother had shown me. I had no idea how she had done it, but she had said she had magic. I studied him, his face, his stance. He was studying me, holding tightly onto the hand of the woman who must be his nanny. He didn't look at me with fear, glancing from Deirdre back to me. It was more caution. I couldn't really blame him. I'm a big guy, that scar across my face didn't do anything for my cuddly factor, and I was pretty scruffy as well. Out of the corner of my eye I saw the bodyguard moving around the car behind him. He carried what looked like a Glock on his hip and had that telltale bulge on his left side. When you're guarding $250 million, I could appreciate the caution that I bent down on one knee. Closer to his height, I felt I might not be quite so frightening. You're my daddy. I am? I recognize you from your pictures. Mommy has them at home. What's your name? Michael Orion McCarthy. Orion is for my grandpa. I looked back at Deirdre. She had taken my life away from me. Thirty minutes before my life had been my own. I was an orphan. No mother and father, no wife, no children. I could risk my life, or throw it away, and no one had a say, because it was my life. It wasn't mine to throw away anymore, to take stupid risks with. Because there was someone else who had a claim on it. I held out one hand to him, moving as slowly as I could. I'm sorry I haven't been here, Michael. Mommy explained that. She said you're really busy. You fly all over the world. You do poor aunt things. But she said you would come someday. I'm glad I came today, Michael. I won't leave you alone anymore. I fell to both knees as he hurled himself into my arms. I tried not to hug him as hard as I felt like doing. After a while he pulled back and said, You're awful big, Daddy. Your grandfather, my father, Patrick McCarthy, was a big man, too. And you will be someday. Deirdre came up behind me and took his hand. It's getting late, Michael. You still have to eat and brush your teeth and get to bed. Say goodbye to your father. Can you come home and tuck me in? Read me a story. Mommy reads me a story every night. I guess that depends on your mother, Michael. She handed him over to the nanny. Let me talk to your father. He may be able to come by. But you have to get ready for bed. The bodyguard and the nanny got him into his car seat and the bodyguard got behind the wheel. As the nanny closed the door, his small hand waved. What? How? Thunder rumbled in the distance, and you could smell rain in the air. We moved under the awning in front of O'Brien's. The regular summer thunderstorms were getting ready to sweep through, although it might take a couple of hours to move in off the Jack's beaches which was the usual summer pattern. She faced me while a wind ruff led her mane of red hair around her face. How is this possible? I can do a blood test, but you and I both know it's not necessary. But that's impossible? No, I'm just not sure how to tell you without making you hate me more. I don't know that that's possible. I knew that you wanted children, Michael, but I was still in love with Julian. And I thought, I was sure, he would come back for me. But you kept getting me pregnant. So you aborted them? No. I didn't abort any of the three times I got pregnant. Remember, I was raised Catholic. But with enough money, you could have the embryos removed and frozen so they could be implanted later. I repeat what changed. After what happened in Guatemala, I knew you were never coming back. I've been with other men since Julian, but I never found anyone I wanted to be serious about. And then I realized that I still had a piece of you. I might never see you again, but I could see you in him. So I tried and we lost the first embryo. We tried again and Michael was born. And you never thought of letting me know? You tore up my letters, wouldn't take any communication at all. And even if I had gotten the word to you, would you believe me without seeing him? Probably not. So now what? That's up to you. He's your son. I won't let you have joint custody and if you try I'll stop you. But you're welcome to see him whenever you're in Jacksonville. If you want to take him on trips within reason feel free. How many bodyguards will be tagging along? None. He's your son. 
And why wouldn't I just take him, vanish and you could spend the next decade looking for him? Because you're a decent man, Michael McCarthy. You wouldn't steal a son from his mother, you wouldn't cause him pain. You're awfully sure of yourself. She stepped closer as the night drew down and the wind whipped dust in the street. Behind me I could hear the sounds of the bar, but it seemed as if we were the only two people in the world. You remember that tape recording you played in Bailey's office that day? You remember I said that I had feelings for you. That was the truth. I didn't want to be in love with Julian when I met you. But I was. I didn't want to hurt you, but I did. That doesn't change the fact that I know what kind of man you are. I turned to go back inside, to the light and laughter and music and beer, away from this all-too-sad autopsy of everything that had gone wrong with my life. Michael. What? I need something to make me feel good. Can you come by the estate tonight? Michael will be crushed if you don't. And I have some papers I hope you'll sign. Papers? Every suspicion I'd had flared back to life. Guardianship papers. I'd like you to agree to become Michael's guardian. I turned back to her. What does that mean? If something happens to me, if I die before he turns 21, I want you to become his guardian. That means you'll have complete control of his money and my company. I don't expect it to happen and you won't have any responsibilities as long as I'm alive. But, I just stared at her. I was getting mental whiplash. You're the only man I've ever known who didn't care anything about my money or the company. If I die, I know you'll take care of Michael because he's your son. I had pushed open the door when she said from behind me. My limo left. Is there any chance you can give me a ride to the estate? It's going to storm tonight. Andre said he's outdone himself with the duck lorange. And he's always enjoyed the way you enjoy his food. That way you can get a good meal, say goodnight to Michael and we'll finish our business together. I let the door close and turned and walked her to my rental. From inside the bar two pairs of eyes watched the man and woman enter the rental. What do you think, sugar? O'Brien asked. He's lost. This story is continued in the next part. This podcast is part of the Erotica Podcast Network. We offer a free Erotica Podcast and a premium patron taboo podcast which contains more intense sexual themes. You can subscribe to the premium podcast for $2 per month or support the Erotica Podcast on Patreon to support us and allow members to request future stories and themes. Links are in the description. Thank you for listening.